Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Exert Breakthrough Lab podcast. I'm your host, Scott Steele, and I'm very excited about our topic that we have today. Uh, we also have a special guest, which is something that we haven't ever done before on this podcast. So uh, I hope you're uh, getting ready for a good ride and, and are ready to tune into this one, because I think we've got some uh, definitely useful information. Uh, that I think a lot of people will find useful, especially as you're, you're starting to do those summer long rides, really taking full advantage of, of those long summer days. As usual, I'm joined by Armando Mastracci. Hey, everyone. And Dr. Stephen Chung. Hey, everybody. How are the two of you doing? It's hot. hot. Yeah. <laughs> Getting yeah. hot and hot humid. Uh, yeah. Lots of humidity here in Southern Ontario. So just adds a layer of challenge on top of heat itself, but otherwise all good. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been some great weather, uh, a little bit warm and humid, but otherwise fantastic weather, getting some long rides in, some gravel rides, uh, having lots of fun. It's been hey, a great summer. You've been killing it on the long rides lately. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, given, given the condition of my hip, I think, uh, I'm pretty, uh, pretty happy with how things have progressed. So, um, yeah, almost back to hundred percent. I'm just, you know, just a few notches down below where I've been in the past, but otherwise I'm pretty happy where things are. I'm, I'm slowly, uh, watching your peak power get, uh, a little bit farther and farther out of reach for me. So I know that I'm not going to be able to compete on those town signs sprints anymore. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's, at, that's... at least after the hip injury, I just like yeah. to <laughs> sticking with you, but not so much anymore. Yeah. Um, so Steven, I know you've been uh, really experimenting with some bike packing. Uh, can uh, you explain a little bit yeah. more about what you've been doing with that? Yeah, just uh, starting to get into the whole bike packing thing. And uh, my friend Matt and I went and tested everything out on an overnighter uh, in late june early july and had a lot of fun with that and and uh, i guess coming up is with uh, events starting to open up again here in ontario there's the eager beaver happening in early august and it's being held up in mansfield ski resort which is about 200 kilometers from home so i kind of have a stupid idea of actually biking to the event racing it and uh, bike packing back so may turn it into a bike packing adventure so uh, starting to put together plans for that and and we'll see how that works so should be interesting certainly got inspired by Lachlan Morton's uh, crazy adventures with his alt tour so thinking uh, I can do a little bit of that too yeah that was incredible <clears throat> I know uh, I've I've been enjoying uh, these longer summer days too so looking forward to uh, getting some of those long rides in something that I've been uh, playing around with in the back of my mind and something hopefully that I can achieve later this summer is uh, uh, completing potentially my, my well for sure my longest solo ride uh, ever I've got a 240 kilometer uh, road ride planned for uh, visiting a friend's cottage up later this summer so got to be got to be prepared for those of you in Ontario pedaling from roughly the Burlington area up to uh, Owen Sound uh, or a little ways north of Owen Sound, Ontario. So oh, great. Uh, looking to be 240K or so and uh, 1,200 meters of climbing, which uh, is actually quite flat for, for that distance, but uh, something that I would definitely like to achieve uh, either in September or October. So you can even do it. You can even find some gravel, uh, gravel yeah. roads if you really wanted to. Scott. See, if I take the gravel bike, then I yeah. have an extra six pounds of weight. So <laughs> six pounds <laughs> that's of weight. That's okay. You still wouldn't be anywhere near as heavy as I am. So. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it as light as possible. Uh, but, yeah. Um, so now that uh, I've hopefully uh, teased everyone, we did announce that we were going to have a special guest today. So I'm, I'm very pleased uh, to announce our special guest, Andy Blow. Um, Andy Blow does have a few top 10 Ironman and 70.3 finishes, as well as being an Xterra world age group title, uh, title athlete. So he did, uh, find precision hydration to help athletes solve their hydration issues. And he does have a degree in sport and exercise science and was once the team sports scientist for Benetton and Renault F1 teams. 
So we're joined here today by by Andy. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. I'm t- I'm honoured to be your first guest. <laughs> I didn't realise you'd never had a guest before. Maybe you won't have another one after tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, could be the is... first and the last. <laughs> it could be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this is great to have you here, uh, Andy. You know, I think between yourself and and Stephen on this topic, you know, I think we've got uh, we've got a lot of ground that we can cover in terms of your expertise. So I think uh, I really hope, um, you know, this is uh, well, I think is going to be a great podcast and that our our, you know, the exert users and the other community that are listening to our podcast are really going to get a lot out of this, I think. So, uh, yeah, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, delighted. Yeah. Uh, so kicking it back, the the main overarching theme that we're going for today is is going to be improving your performance on those long rides. So for those of you that are in uh, Northern Hemisphere right now, we, we just did pass some of the longest days of the year, but there's still plenty of uh, days of long rides ahead. And, and so what we hope that we can do today is give you some tips, give you some tricks, um, really help you get the most out of those days, whether that's an event, uh, something that you're training for by yourself. Uh, and, and so that's going to be our focus for today. Um, to really get things started, um, I was hoping that we could start by just listing uh, some of the, the big picture ideas uh, that will affect, that's going to limit your performance uh, over those long rides. So um, maybe Stephen, if you would like to uh, get us started with uh, perhaps some of those things that can limit that performance. Well, but the main thing to think about, and I mean, we all know this, is that the body isn't a perpetual motion machine and that everything eventually breaks down, just like um, just like a car, just like any kind of vehicle. You, you use it long enough and it will, it will wear down. And that's the course of what happens over a long ride. So the main thing is that we have, we have fat and carbohydrates that are stored in our body and that gets used up. And especially we'll be talking a lot about carbohydrate usage, but, uh, that is our main fuel that we prefer to use whenever we are going into any kind of intensity and, you know, and we're not talking about sprints or really hard hill intervals. We're just talking about any time you're in a, uh, laying down power you are using both fats and carbohydrates. So that eventually runs down. And again, we have limited amount of carbohydrates. So that's going to be the real limiter to performance. And then there is also, uh, you know, what keeps me employed is heat. You are converting food energy and you are only about 20% efficient in terms of converting it to mechanical energy. The rest gets converted to heat. So if you're laying down power at 200 watts, you are actually also generating 800 watts of heat energy. And that's got to be uh, removed from the body. And it's not as big an issue possibly in the wintertime, but certainly in the heat, it is a huge issue because you have to get rid of that heat on top of the ambient heat stress. So those are two big issues. And then obviously your muscles, um, you know, also, you know, get less efficient as they become used. And there's both a metabolic component to it. And there's also structural muscular damage that is being done. So there's a lot of things that are happening over the, the course of a ride. And then there's, you know, simple things like friction, whether it's saddle sores, whether it's, uh, overuse injuries on, of uh, your knees or anything like that, low back, uh, poor bike fit, that's all going to get exacerbated over over the course of a long ride. You can get away with it over a one-hour ride. You can suffer through almost anything in terms of whether it's under-fueling, whether it is a it is a poor bike fit or a bike that you know isn't well adapted to you. But you know, the longer you ride, the more that's going to catch up with you. So lots and lots of different things, but yeah, certainly we'll be talking a lot about the metabolic aspects and also the kind of the heat aspects today. Yeah. So you brought up a a lot of good points there and I think uh, we can almost take a a step back and and really 
start by describing what do we mean by a long ride? Uh, and so uh, specifically in the context of carbohydrates, I would say that a lot of times anything over about 90 minutes uh, is going to be start uh, is going to start to to push those carb limits. And so when we are referring to these long rides, it is typically going to be something that's at least an hour and a half. Um, but for many uh, for many athletes, it could extend to six to eight or more hours. Yeah, and I guess the the basics of physiology is again when I talk about carbohydrates, it is generally stored in your body as glycogen and it is in really two big buckets. One is in your liver and the other is throughout all of your individual muscle fibers or muscle cells. So there's about, it varies depending on your size, on your training, your diet and everything, but it's probably about 400 grams roughly of of uh, carbohydrates. So it's not much. And each gram of carbohydrates is roughly four kilocalories. So you have about 1600 kilocalories stored in your body as carbohydrates. So you're dealing with a finite resource as opposed to fat, where it's a much more energy dense to begin with. Each gram of fat has nine kilocalories of energy stored in it. And that is why, you know, evolutionarily we've, we've uh, adapted to storing energy as fat because it, it's much more efficient than storing it as glycogen. So if even a lean athlete of, if you're, if you're, um, for the sake of math, if you're 80 kilograms and you have 5% body fat composition, that is still four kilograms of fat in your body four times four kilograms as opposed to 400 grams times nine uh, kilocalories essentially you're dealing with with for most efforts a a uh, non-depleting resource as opposed to carbohydrates which is in glycogen which is a very finite resource yeah, absolutely. Actually, yeah, I, I just want to jump in because I think, you know, this is probably a good opportunity to ask, you know, Andy for some comments here. You know, one of the things you're talking about, Stephen, is, you know, the effects of heat and that you're, you know, the fact that, you know, for every 200 watts of power, you know, you're generating 800 watts of heat. Um, you know, the, the way the body generally gets rid of that heat is through kind of sweat, right? Through evaporative kind of dissipation, heat dissipation. So, that's where the sweat rate comes in. And, you know, we have to replenish both the, the, um, the fluids that you're losing in the process of, of, of dealing with that heat. So that's something to keep in mind is that, you know, you're, you're generating heat even when it's cold. So that, that sweat, that's why you sweat even in the winter, because, you know, your, your, your body's going to, uh, you know, sweat to be able to deal with that heat that's being generated. So obviously, in the, in the summertime, it becomes a bit of a problem because you kind of need, you need the wind, you need, you know, you need to be moving to get some of that evaporative ability to kind of deal with the sweat that you're producing. So it's why it's a bit more critical. Uh, and you're probably why you end up sweating a little bit more in the, in the summertime than you do in the winter. But, you know, then there's the, you know, the electrolytes that you lose in the process. So maybe Andy, maybe you can could give us a little bit of your perspective on that. Yeah, you're absolutely right in, in respect to the fact that sweating is the primary way that the body's going to try and dump heat when we're exercising because evaporative cooling is way more powerful than any other type of cooling that we've got. We can, you know, kind of through convection or whatever, we can get rid of some heat to the environment if the environment's cool enough. But basically that feeling that most people will be familiar with if you've been to a if you've been to a, an outdoor swimming pool on a hot day, you jump in and you, you feel really hot, you get out and immediately feel really quite cold for a few seconds or for a minute while the wind blows over you and it evaporates the water off. That's that's how powerful evaporative cooling is. So the body, human body evolved in a hot, dry climate in Africa where we, the theory goes at least that from an evolutionary perspective, we got pretty good at persistence hunting, which is chasing down prey animals by, by out enduring them in the heat of the day as opposed to being fast enough to catch them quickly. And this ability to sweat gave us this, it was a competitive advantage in that environment. And it's, and it's obviously survived and 
these days because we don't have to go and, and you know and catch or most of us don't have to go and hunt animals on the savannah for dinner we can use that sweating ability to go on really long bike rides in the heat instead and and and, and yeah and, and then going on from there obviously the more heat you produce the more you have to sweat to keep your core temperature down the more fluid and then eventually the more electrolytes you're going to lose and replacing those is is becomes critical at, at, certain, at a certain point we've obviously got a reservoir we've got a capacity of how much we can lose before performance gets affected and there's a lot of debate in sports science about how much that you know that how much basically fluid in the electrolyte you can lose before your performance drops off but what is inarguable is at some point you you start to deteriorate and you know just to bring my own story in on that briefly, I have a very high sweat rate. I can easily sweat two and a half liters an hour for a guy who's only at race weight, sort of 68 kilos. And I lose a ton of electrolytes in my sweat. I lose about 1.8 grams of sodium per liter of sweat, 1800 milligrams, which is about double what the average person loses. And I learned the hard way in lots of long, hot races that if you don't get that level of replacement right, then you end up with an IV in your arm in a medical tent. And it's, it's uh, it's pretty it's a it's a pretty frustrating way to sort of you know find find all of that out. So hence hence the fact that these days what I've been doing for a number of years is working with athletes to understand fluid and electrolyte losses and most critically understand that point at which those losses mount up to a detrimental degree and then put putting strategies in place to mitigate that, which basically is a fancy way of saying we tell them we try and tell people or try and guide people on how much to drink and what to drink during long bouts of exercise to maintain their individual performance. Well, a comment on that and then a question back to you, Andy. It's, um, I guess the first part is just to remind our listeners that everybody's sweat rate is individual, both the, and there's a lot of factors affecting it. There is individual variability. We actually just published a, a review paper just this past week on uh, sex differences in both sweating rates and also the responses to dehydration and between men and women. So sex difference, there's also individual, again, Andy, you, you sweat a lot. Uh, you know, other individuals may not sweat as much. We know that fitter individuals tend to have higher sweat rates and also heat acclimated individuals have higher sweat rates. And the other thing to remember is that our body doesn't necessarily want to be losing all the electrolytes. It is really interested in you know, getting water on the skin. So the sweat glands try to reabsorb the different electrolytes, primarily sodium, but also potassium uh, from the interstitial fluid that it is using for the sweating production. And uh, so part of heat acclimation includes the most sweat glands being more efficient at retaining the electrolytes. So that's the general physiology. But Andy, can you talk to us about, uh, you know, again, you've just talked about yourself as one extreme. Uh, how do, can people, you know, understand, measure their fluid, kind of their sweat rates, and also their the electrolyte or the saltiness of their sweat? What are some kind of practical ones short of being in a lab and kind of doing it in a, a controlled setting? Yeah, um, good question. I think the measuring sweat rate is relatively straightforward for most people. Um, you need a set of scales, a set of bathroom scales. And if you weigh yourself before a bout of exercise, as close to naked as the situation allows, we don't, you know, we don't recommend people wear themselves naked in the gym. That's not normally popular. But if you're doing it at home, you can weigh yourself completely naked. Kit up, go ride, do whatever you're going to do. And if you're going to drink, record how much you drink. It, it can ideally be done over an hour or so without drinking. Weigh yourself when you get back. And the difference in weight that you've lost is, is going to be approximate to your sweat loss. So one kilo, of, one kilo of weight loss equates to about one liter of sweat loss. And if you do that enough times in enough different conditions or in enough conditions that simulate those that you're going to do your, your toughest workouts and races and you get it, you start to build up a bit of a picture for how much you, you, what your sweat rates like. And I think I'm right in saying from, from the literature perspective, a kind of average sweat rate for a human adult who's quite fit exercising in 
moderate temperatures is around about a litre an hour, something like that. Um, and but but obviously sweat rates can be very close to zero in cold conditions. And we've measured um, a few big guys in the NFL and the NBA, and also see some tennis players who have sweat rates that are touching four liters an hour. I've read reports of people with even bigger sweat rates than that. So that kind of gives you the the, the spectrum. And and actually, um, as Stephen pointed out, you know, the fitter you get, the more you sweat. So your sweat rate will increase as you get fitter because your body becomes better at cooling effectively and the harder you can work the more you're going to sweat because of because of the more heat you're going to produce so um it's sort of that's that's one way of figuring out the, the weighing method is figuring out helps you figure out where you fit on that spectrum really from low to high um the the saltiness of your sweat this is the one that caught me out because People who sweat a lot tend to know it. You know, I used to know it because my jersey was soaked whenever I did any running or, you know, I could almost be wringing my socks out after a long, hard bike ride. So I knew I had this high sweat rate. It, it was a, a medic friend of mine who looked at me after a few races where I had problems and he saw the salt marks and salt stains on my skin and said, I think you're losing a lot of salt, like a lot more than the average person. And he dragged me into a hospital. This is going back 15, uh, 17 years ago. And get I had a cystic fibrosis sweat test where they took a sweat sample and analyzed the sodium concentration. And sure enough, it was really, really high. And um, that was the eye-opening moment for me in terms of understanding that that could be also quite a significant variable because like Stephen had hinted at, I'd, I'd always been under the impression that fitter people, you get more efficient, you don't lose as much salt. But while, and whilst training and acclimation to the heat can shift your sweat sodium levels around a little bit, the, the, the fact of the matter is I've tested myself many, many times in different situations before and after heat training camps and things. And my sweat sodium will come down, but it will come down to maybe 1600 milligrams of loss per liter from 18 or 1900. It doesn't put me down in the two or 300 range that we see for people who are really low. So we've over the years, we've done lots of sweat testing with athletes and a sweat test where we take a sweat sample and analyze it is kind of the gold standard for working out what your sweat sodium losses are. Obviously it's an objective measurement, but subjective measurements are surprisingly good. And there's a couple of papers been written that have suggested that even by asking athletes to, to mark on a slider, you know, do you think your salt losses are low, medium, high, very high? that's a relatively good guide if athletes know their body and they know the signs to look out for like does the salt does the sweat really sting in your eyes when you when you sweat in the heat do you see white salt crusts on your skin are you more prone to muscle cramps these kind of questions can help you know kind of self-identify and we've built a questionnaire based um sort of click through on our website on precisionhydration.com where you can click through answer some questions and it will start to help you figure out and quantify whether you're likely to be someone who's got low sodium loss medium high or or very high and then obviously you you trial and error with some um, some strategies to to mitigate those losses based on whatever they are so although although testing this stuff is is like i say the gold standard i think having a good estimate even just being aware that this is a thing is the starting point and you can do a lot without any sophisticated measurement the with cyclists I always find is if after long rides, the, the helmet straps that come down here, if they're caked in salt, that's a good sign that you're a, someone who's losing a bit more, a bit more than the average. Or just if you're someone who really despises rice, riding in the heat and feels a lot crappier than, than all your friends do, you know, when it's in the heat, whereas in the cold, you're kicking their asses. It's, it's you know, it's all those kind of, you, you're a bit like a detective. You put all those little clues together and it can all point in, in one or another direction. Well, I would have to say, you know, that certainly, you know, that's you're kind of talking to somebody who's anybody that rides with me sees me as always white. My face is full of salt. My 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 dark clothing is all stained with white stains everywhere. And and I'm one that don't I'm not particularly fond of riding in the heat. I, I, I get dehydrated very quickly. I get overheated very quickly. So, uh, yeah, you know, I've been using your product now and, uh, so far so good. Um, you know, it seems to be, seems to be helping me certainly like the product in terms of, uh, the, the flavors and things like that. Uh, it's not very sweet, but the, you know, the 1500 for me seems like it might be the right thing. So, um, I've been using it for a while now. Um, 
because yeah, uh, I certainly feel like I'm in one of those positions where like yourself, I probably, I'm probably sweating a lot more salt. It's certainly indicative when you see it on my clothing and on my face stings my eyes, just the same way you're describing. So, uh, um, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely something that I would, you know, encourage others to kind of look at to see if their sweat rates and, or their, at least their electrolyte usage and salt, uh, uh, loss is higher than normal, you know, they, they, they could also benefit from uh, higher salt content in their drinks. Uh, Amanda, have you, have you ever felt that your, the other, the other sign, which I forgot to mention, which I used to suffer with a lot was like low blood pressure on standing. You know, if you go out and do a long ride and you sit down on the couch for a while and it's, if it's been hot, I used to get a lot of dizzy spells standing up, you know, that kind of postural hypertension where you feel quite woozy that's, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but that's often another sign that you're losing quite a lot of as fluid volume and salt because it obviously drops your blood volume and, and drops your, your blood pressure. Yeah, I, I can't say that I have noticed that, but, you know, I was talking to Stephen, you know, Stephen actually popped by, the, uh, by the, the lab yesterday and we were talking a little bit about this because we were preparing for the, for the podcast. And, you know, one of the things that I can reflect on myself is, you know, I've had periods where I've had, you know, heat exhaustion, you know, you know, potentially heat, heat stroke. I wasn't diagnosed with having heat stroke, but I've certainly felt kind of the impact of being extremely dehydrated on the bike where, you know, you just, you're, you're, I've started to get goosebumps and I kind of stop sweating and things like that. And, you know, it happens to me on a, on a fairly regular basis. So one of the things that, you know, I wanted to point out in terms of my own experience is that you can certainly hydrate while you're on the bike, but it's so critical that you hydrate before you get on the bike. You got to be hydrated before you start to ride, especially if you're going to be riding in the heat. So I think that's something that uh, a lot of people may not necessarily be aware of, uh, maybe because they're not affected as much, uh, uh, you're not as affected as, as others are uh, on this, but Certainly for myself, like, uh, you know, I'm not the type to have a bottle beside me all day long where I keep myself hydrated and probably it's a bad habit. But um, yeah, you know, if you're if you're entering a ride and you're dehydrated to start the ride, um, you're going to struggle in the heat. And if you're not sweating enough to cool your body, then you're you have 800 watts are not are not being dissipated they're being absorbed and, where, and what happens? Well, that means your body core temperature keeps going up. And if your body core temperature keeps going up, you know, it's, it's incompensable and you, it's going to force you to stop at some point. It's just going to make you feel really terrible at some point. So that's a, certainly the experience that I have for myself. And, and I'm sure, you know, that's probably something that others are, uh, are uh, also experiencing. Yeah. And that's actually, uh, you must have also been reading my, uh, one of my classic PhD papers, Armando, because <laughs> we actually tested this. It was in soldiers wearing chemical warfare clothing in very hot environments. And we had them walk as long as they could at a set pace. And uh, some of the conditions we had was uh, we specifically tested, what if you were dehydrated beforehand, but was given kind of fluid during it? What if you were normally hydrated beforehand and did not get fluid during it? And so it was really kind of a timing of fluid replacement. And we found that it was always better to be properly hydrated during or kind of before exercise in the heat and uh, then to be dehydrated beforehand. You simply cannot replace it fast enough, especially mm -hmm. in, in a very hot environment. So it was always the tolerance time, the core temperature they could handle was always better when they were properly hydrated beforehand, even if they didn't get fluids during exercise itself. So absolutely. The biggest thing is to make sure you're properly hydrated. You don't necessarily need to be hyperhydrated. You know, it's not a case of if a little is good, more is better. The studies that are out there looking at hyperhydration, where you are deliberately kind of the equivalent of carbo-loading, right? You're trying to water load beforehand, doesn't really work. You can't really, your body just simply won't tolerate a really higher than normal kind of water level, fluid level, and it will, your kidneys will just be very effective in getting rid of it quickly. And also the times that it has been kind of a done, it hasn't really shown a real kind of thermal or performance benefit. So you just want to make sure you're normally hydrated. And the best thing to do is just, you know, know what is your typical body weight. 
right? And, um, you know, whether it's weighing yourself on scale regularly to know, you know, for example, I know during, during uh, my, you know, my peak fitness, it's, I'm usually at around 64 to maybe low 65 kilogram. And, uh, you know, if you suddenly see yourself at 63, you know, before your ride, you know, you're probably going to be in trouble. Right. And, uh, so absolutely keep on top of the hydration. I remember also doing my postdoc in Aberdeen with Ron Mon, and he did a lot of work with, you know, at the time, premier league football players or soccer players. And he was just constantly astounded at how chronically dehydrated they were, you know, when it came to training every day or when they were competing and he just felt it was absolutely irresponsible of top level athletes to be coming into a training or a match uh, event, you know, not prepared in terms of being properly hydrated. So again, I can't emphasize and support uh, your kind of statement there enough. It's really interesting. You say all of that, Stephen, because one of the most just on a, on a, on a different, metric for this but one of the most downloaded and read blogs on our website is how to start hydrated because we see so many athletes that don't start competitions or um more often actually hard training sessions inadequately hydrated and but also one of the perceptions and you touched on it is that you just need to drink loads and people start drinking way too much way too early and say in the build-up to a race you'll see people glugging down liters of water in the last few days as if that can make up for make up for it and they they run the risk of actually um, diluting their electrolyte levels down you know since starting mildly hyponatremic there's a there's a paper that was published about three years ago i think that took blood samples from ultra, ultra marathon runners at the start of the spartathlon in greece which is like a 140 mile running race in the heat where everyone is quite rightly quite paranoid about dehydration and something like 15 or 20% of the starters had signs of mild hyponatremia. Their blood sodium levels were below 135 millimoles on the start line. And the only rational explanation for that was the fact that they, these people had overconsumed water in the last 48 hours in a bid to be super hydrated. And like you said, it's not like glycogen loading. You can't store up tons of extra water. You can kind of hack the system a little bit with some additional sodium in the last hour or so and maybe get a small compensatory boost in blood volume but it's it's not it's not just like a more is better thing and we spend a lot of time battling with athletes who have kind of ingrained habits where they don't drink very well most of the time in training and then super drink before a race and we have to try and you know talk them through that well, actually, I had, a, I had a question, I think, for both of you, because, you know, we talked a bit, a bit about, you know, sweating and dehydration. We also talked about glycogen depletion. And one of the things that I guess I'm curious about, um, and, I, and I'm not that familiar with the research, is that, you know, you need, you need to drink to actually uh, store glycogen, because glycogen needs water to be able to, to be actually generate the glycogen molecules that are stored. How does that, you know, I don't know if you can comment on that. Like you, you know, you, you, Steve, when you're talking about maintaining your weight, part of that is also making sure you're eating enough and you're restoring the glycogen that you've lost. And if that's stored with, with water at the same time, that could also amount to quite a bit of weight. People talk about losing weight uh, when they, when they go on these low carb diets. And a lot of times the, that weight loss is just simply from losing the, 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 uh, the glycogen in their body. So how does, you know, the, the, what significance these kind of the water that gets bound to the glycogen, how is that used? Is it, is it, is it part of the, you know, the reservoir of water that we have for exercise and for, for sweating? I don't know if you can comment at all on that. Well, absolutely. I mean, you, it's absolutely true that you do store water with glycogen. And uh, so it's roughly about 2.4 to 3 grams of water for every gram of glycogen. So again, if you have 400 grams of, of um, glycogen stored in your body, you have about 1.2 kilos of, of water also stored. So it's, um, it's not kind of in a sense part of your 
your normal kind of intracellular fluid or interstitial fluid or kind of in your plasma volume. But when you start using up carb, your glycogen, yes, it does get get released into the body and it becomes available. So it does act as a additional store of water as you are exercising. That brings back to another issue. A lot of people sometimes uh, say when they carb load, they feel really bloated or they suddenly see, you know, they freak out because they get on the scale and they weigh more. Well, again, part of it is water weight. And you're also right, probably when you have a low carb diet, you probably end up losing that weight also because you're not using water to store store uh, carbohydrates. But I guess ultimately, when you start exercising, those 2.4 to 3 grams of, of water for every gram of glycogen, yes, that gets released into your general body. And then that that uh, goes through your different kind of body fluid compartments too. So it does become available for use after that. Yeah, I, I was always, I was always happy at the start of an Ironman on the morning of an Ironman to weigh a kilo, maybe a kilo and a half more than my regular baseline body weight. And I know that a lot of athletes freak out if they see heavier weight on the scales, because they obviously equate what's the kilo and go, I need to be as light as possible. But is, is literally like weighing a race car with and without fuel in it. You know, you, you, you would, your race car would be lighter for sure if you took the fuel tank out, but it also wouldn't go very far. And, you know, I always used to think of it like, yeah, this is a good sign because it means my glycogen stores are up. I've got that extra water on board. And, you know, it's five hours in, I'm going to be, I'm going to be getting near the bottom of the barrel, but I'm going to be relying on that. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I like that one. I'm going to need to keep that in the future. Uh, before we continue, uh, we do want to talk a little bit more about glycogen and, and specifically glycogen depletion, but um, I did want to kind of sidetrack just a little bit. And, and we've spent a lot of time talking about hydration, talking about uh, making sure you have those carbohydrates and, and prepping for that long ride. But I think maybe Armando, what I would like to um, have you elaborate on for some of our users is if some of those things aren't properly managed, what are they going to see and exert? So what is, what is dehydration or what does, um, what does not being properly fueled for your ride, what does that look like in exert or how could they identify it? Uh, it will look like exactly what happened to me on Tuesday. So uh, I was riding a group ride on Tuesday and it was the morning where it was, uh, you know, 93% humidity and uh, I wasn't hydrated well enough going into that ride. And um, yeah, so what you end up seeing is that you're going to have a hard time bringing MPA down, like you, whether the, you're watching it on your Garmin or on your, you know, Exert EBC app and you're looking at it, you're your hammerhead Carew and you're not seeing the MPA value come down um, and you're just feeling really crap. Like you're feeling, I, I feel like, I don't feel like I have the capacity to really uh, take myself to the limit. And, and the feeling isn't one of um, you don't have the power in your legs. It, you just feel like it's really sucky. It just feels terrible. You don't really have the, you don't feel like you have the energy almost to bring MPA down. And so that's a, to me, a telltale sign that there's something, there's something impeding your performance. There's something that, you know, you're just, you're not ready to give it everything you have on that day. And so if, you know, if you're riding in a group ride, you're riding in a race and you're seeing your MPA value, uh, you know, hundred Watts below its peak. And you're thinking there's, I have no desire to bring it down any further. Then chances are there's something you know, there's something impeding your, your ability to perform. So that to me is this sign. Now, whether that's, you know, you can start to use that information to say, well, why, like what's causing this? What, 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 what am I not doing? How I'm, how am I not properly prepared for this? You can start to ask yourself those questions, but you can certainly feel it. So it's not a question of, you know, the MPA value is not right. You know, my, my signature is not right you know, chances are that that's probably not it. It's your signature might be perfectly fine uh, in terms of being able to represent your MPA value, but you're just not, you're, you're not ready to 
give it everything you have that day. So there's something, something in the way of that. So that's really the key. That's where you, that's what you'll, you'll see it in real time. You'll see it on your chart after you post it up to exert. You're just like, you're seeing your NPA float up really high. And you knew at the time you were suffering and you think, well, why am I suffering and unable to bring the MPA down? And oftentimes that can happen, you know, in the heat um, and early on, if you're not ready to handle it. If you're looking at a very long ride, because you're talking about kind of longer rides, you'll, you'll certainly see that in long rides where, you know, you're feeling like you're, you're, you're out of energy. You're, you're, you know, that glycogen depletion has really taken over and you're just unable to bring MPA down. So what, what you see when you, when, what you feel and what's really happening when you, when you're seeing MPA not come down is that your, um, your signature values are now overestimated at that time, meaning you can't sustain kind of your threshold over a long period. You don't have the same one or two minute power like you did at the very beginning of the ride. There's something that is, that is, that is causing that additional fatigue that is reflected in your MPA chart when you're looking at it. So that's really, that's really the key uh, in terms of using Exert to under, understand sort of what's, what's affecting your ability to perform on, on any given day. Is, is there something related to uh, just overheating? Um, and that explains what, what, why MPA didn't come down. Uh, you weren't fueling properly and you know, your uh, long, your five or six hour ride is just becoming too difficult for you. Those are all, you know, examples of where you would look at your chart, or if you're looking at MPA in real time, it's just not coming down as easily as you as you think it it, it could, or it has come down in the past. Yeah, and I think something that's important to point out as well is that uh, just because MPA isn't coming down as quickly as you think that it should be doesn't necessarily mean it's a it's kind of the software is wrong sort of thing. Uh, there's been many, many, many instances where I've seen athletes getting breakthroughs four, five, six hours into a ride. I think, uh, however, I think the caveat to that is is very close attention to that hydration, to that uh, to that nutrition strategy. I mean, we saw uh, with with Matthew Vanderpool earlier this year, we saw him get a breakthrough at the um, um, breakthrough at the line and and five hours and 20 minutes into a race. So it's not that um, it's inherently impossible to get a breakthrough that deep into a ride. I think it just requires you to, to pay closer attention uh, uh, to, to that carb utilization, to, um, to those fluids that you're taking in. And fueling. And then some of the other things we were going to talk about today as well, in terms of how do you prep your body to be able to handle kind of the demands of the event. So I think that's another side of this is, you know, whether you're, you're becoming more heat adapted because the, the ride, the race is going to be in, in hotter weather or whether it's a longer race and you know, it's going to be much more intense. And so you're going to have a higher demand on the carbohydrates that are going to be used and that you're going to have to store to be able to, um, uh, to be able to compete. So these are the sort of things that, um, you know, you can improve your carbohydrate, your, your glycogen storage through training. You know, you can obviously improve your heat adaptation through training you can start to train your gut to be able to handle more, uh, uh, be able to, to uh, absorb more carbohydrates as, you, as you're fueling. We'll get into more, uh, more on that later, but these are all the things that you can do to um, improve your ability to kind of reach and be able to perform at your, at your limit deep into a ride. That's kind of when, when, you, when you look at your MPA chart and if you see something three and four hours down and you're able to bring MPA all the way down uh, and reach a breakthrough, you're, you've done a great job in your fueling and you're managing your, your intensity. That's, the, that's how it's reflected in your chart. So that's kind of what you're looking for. And that's kind of, uh, you know, ultimately the, um, um, you know, the, the, the best way to kind of um, uh, manage your, your, your levels and your performance deep into a ride. Well, Andy, uh, another kind of question for you. It's, um, yeah, obviously you can't really be drinking during the swim stage of a triathlon, but, uh, or eating and, but how early should you, you know, let's take a 70.3 or a, or an Ironman, how early on the bike should you kind of, once you transition out of T1 and get on the bike, how early and how much would you kind of suggest eating kind of early on in that bike or 
or would you try to be evenly spacing it out? What would be kind of your personal advice? When, when I was growing up doing triathlon, the advice was to give yourself some time out of the swim, maybe have a little bit of water, let things settle down because your breathing's all over the place. Your heart rate's all over the place, very high when you come out of the water. Often when you go from that end of the swim to standing and running through transition, you'll see your highest heart rate spike of the whole race for a lot of people. Um, and that was the, the, the sort of like the common wisdom was to like leave it a while. Uh, I would say that is that my opinion on that has changed dramatically and a lot of other people seems to have as well in that we now talk to a lot of athletes about front loading the nutrition in the triathlon. So for numerous reasons, like Stephen said, you, you obviously, if you, if you're drinking in the swim, then you, it's a technique issue really. Um, it's, it's not deliberate. If once you get on the bike, that's the best time to refuel and rehydrate in a triathlon because you want to hit the end of the bike ride set up for a good run, knowing that running and eating and drinking is harder than biking and eating and drinking and and then even so if you were let's let's take for example and say you were aiming to hit 75 grams of carbohydrate an hour throughout the course of the triathlon you'd be wanting to hit close to 100 early on in the bike ride knowing that it's going to taper off on the run and knowing that it's probably going to taper off even on the latter stage of the, the ride because your ability to absorb and your ability to tolerate the, the, the calories and get them into your system is usually better earlier in the race because you've got higher blood volume, your gut is less disturbed. And, and so this, this chat, this, this concept of front loading, essentially you have to eat a little bit earlier than you necessarily feel like you, you should or would, but generally then you see beneficial, we sort of see beneficial outcomes because you keep your energy levels higher and you spare more by putting more exogenous fuel in, you're sparing your muscle glycogen a little bit better. And it's definitely a trend I'm seeing with the, the the faster athletes that we're working with is like really trying to ramp up the, that fueling early on. I've seen, so I'm wearing um, one of these continuous glucose monitors at the moment, and I'm working with a lot of athletes that are playing around with these. And it's a very new area, but although CGMs have been around for years for diabetic people, for sports performance, it's still relatively new, but it's really interesting what that kind of starts to tell you about fueling and Essentially, what it's taught me on longer efforts is fuel earlier and fuel more frequently. And and that tends to... Uh, GI issues, if GI issues can be avoided, then to a degree more is better on that side. So then what if you're Scott and doing, uh, doing his 240K ride with, you know, obviously with no swimming beforehand, would you be suggesting the same thing of really stacking... You know, not just eating, you know, the advice certainly is, you know, you should be eating early, but you should, you also be front loading kind of uh, on a bike ride. That's really I, long. I think, I think different individuals will have different responses, but I, I would be advocating for that in a very long ride because you know, at some point you're going to fall off the cliff of glycogen depletion. It, it depends a little bit on intensity. You know, if you are, if it's a very casual pace that you're keeping up, you've obviously got a bit more latitude with the fueling. Uh, but I mean, one of one of the guys from Precision Hydration, Brad, who lives in, um, well, he was living in Alabama, rode 200 miles through the week from from Alabama to the Florida coast, just because that's the kind of thing he's into. And uh, he he really did feel quite aggressively early on and kept up an impressively flat power profile and pace for the entire thing. And and so I don't think there's a lot of harm, and I think there's a lot of good potentially from from starting early i did i did an interesting experiment a couple of weeks ago which is only for a two and a, a bit hour ride but i did two and a bit hours on the gravel and i did one ride with virtually no fueling um, and i did another one where i started fueling 20 minutes in and obviously you would expect kind of better performance towards the end of a two hour ride when you started fueling early but it was remarkable for me not only how much better i felt at the end of the ride considering i rode at the same pace the whole way but also the recovery afterwards was night and day you know there was probably only two minutes difference in my performance time over the it was about 50 kilometers that i rode or 55 kilometers that i rode but because i'd fueled early and relatively aggressively for that duration i'd obviously spared a lot of my muscle glycogen and my legs felt so much better i was able to get on with the rest of my day totally fine whereas the other ride really did kind of put me in a bit of bit of a hole and that's only going to be magnified when you're doing a really long ride. And I think for a lot of people, and I'm guessing a lot of people that are using Exert are 
not all pro athletes you know these are people who've got got families and jobs and things and we train around the rest of life and i think fueling adequately in your training sessions and fueling early a lot i see i see it frowned upon when i go on a group ride then it's kind of if you rustle in your pocket for a gel after 25 minutes people are going to look at you like you're a bit of a wimp but but actually if you want to be out if i want to be out playing football with my kids in the afternoon afterwards then i've got to eat plenty on that ride because I need glycogen later as well. It's no good getting to the end of the ride in the in the bin. So it, I think that's a that's a big factor. Is like you, if you if if this is fitting in with the rest of your life, then fuel fuel appropriately to cope with everything, not just that ride. Yeah. So those are some great points, and and I've heard you mention a couple of times uh, talking about muscle glycogen. So I was hoping that maybe Andy, you could elaborate uh, for our users a little bit. Um, kind of uh, how what is uh what role does muscle glycogen play and and how does that correlate with uh kind of the dreaded bonk so how are those how are those things related so muscle glycogen is is where you've got bundles of glucose that have been put together in the body in a really dense format so it's like high octane fuel for the for the body and it's stored in the muscles because that's where it's going to be burnt and used for it's immediately available. It's having the fuel on tap. And, you know, Stephen's talked about the numbers involved and how many grams of carbohydrate you can hold. And what's interesting is that when, when athletes kind of super compensate and, you know, are well-trained and eat a lot of carbohydrate, they can store like significantly higher amounts of carbohydrate with carb loading and glycogen than, than you can normally. So you can sort of super boost those tanks. When you start exercising at a high enough intensity, your muscles start to burn through that that energy and it's really as you get below certain levels of depletion of that that and your body has to start to be creative about where it finds the energy required to do the work you know turning towards fat predominantly um to as a substitute when your glycogen gets low enough that's when you when you bonk and that's and the reason you kind of slow down is that your body puts the brakes on really the kind of if you're the the central governor theory is is slightly outdated now but it's kind of a good basis for this where your brain is trying to look after your your body it stops you from doing stuff to to an extent that damages you so you you detect that your body your brain detects that muscle glycogen is getting critically low if you keep burning it at this rate you're going to really run out so it slows you down to slow the the energy utilization and you have to go slower to oxidize fat to provide the energy and you feel like you feel like death you're you're muted right now steven one sec whoops sorry um <laughs> yeah i was gonna say in terms of my own personal experiences it's certainly recently i've gotten into habit of eating more during a, you know, again, like Andy was saying about a two and a half, any, any ride over two hours, I'm eating a lot more now than I used to do. And for me, the, the best thing has been getting a bar bag, um, and having it in front of my handlebars. And I'm able to stuff a ton of food bars, dried mangoes, whatever you have uh, you can fit you can mm-hmm. oh yeah mm-hmm. the other big thing i like is uh is actually maple syrup um 50 50 with water i have it in a little gel flask i love that but um i just find with a bar bag you can stuff so much into it way more than you can comfortably really stuff into jersey pockets and it doesn't feel as constrictive and it's also right in front of you so you actually remember it if even if it's in your jersey pockets half the time you forget about it or or uh, it's too much hassle reaching behind me uh, to to grab it. So I've certainly, for me, the biggest biggest uh, kind of thing I've that has helped me to eat more and more regularly on long bike rides is really a a, a handlebar bag. And is it cool? Well, Walt Van Eric had a had a photo of himself with with uh, his handlebar bag and saying, "I'm heading out for a long ride, and I'm all ready with." with snacks so if Walt rides it it's obviously cool so mm. i'm a i'm full fan of it you know that that actually you know begs a, a pretty big question at least in my eyes like you know we you hear a lot about fasted training right and how you know you're training fasted that's going to accelerate whatever 
uh, adaptations you might get. But I think there's some there's some point of diminishing returns with that. And I think at least that's my understanding of the research that uh, that's out uh, on this topic. So, you know, you, you do want to fuel sufficiently to be able to support the high intensity efforts. Uh, and you need that fuel to really build on that fitness. So you just can't you, you, you can't train fasted and, and, and continuously improve that that at some point you've got to really train the body to actually use the use the carbohydrates more effectively store more carbohydrates so that you can handle longer rides um and you know and then you know then the secondary effect is that if you're eating and doing this while you're on the bike not only are you continuously maintaining those high carbohydrate levels either blood levels so that you can you can use those to um, you know, to save some of the, the glycogen you may have in your, in your, in your muscles. Um, but then you're also training your ability to kind of absorb. So you, we will get into that kind of like, are you training your gut and avoiding some of the GI issues because you're eating more on the bike? So I think there's some secondary benefits to, to, you know, to doing that as well while you're riding. And then the third one is, you know, that, eventually these carbohydrates need to make it themselves back into your system. So, so if you have the GI capacity to, to bring them into your system while you're riding, then you might as well use that rather than waiting until after your ride and then reabsorbing all the carbohydrates after your ride. So you might as well continuously absorb them while you're riding, gives yourself a much better uh, recovery uh, both actually during the ride as well as afterwards. So you're not, you're not demanding as much of the body to reabsorb those carbohydrates afterwards that some of that was done during the ride. So I think there's lots of, I guess, um, I, I guess belief that, you know, that, that eating, eating more and fueling more on the ride is probably going to be a lot better for you than, than, than otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I have very similar comments uh, on, on the keto diet approach. I know, uh, which is, uh, for those that don't know, keto is typically a low-carb diet. Um, and so uh, it, I think it was more popular a few years back, but I think there's still enough cyclists that are curious, like, oh, should I be doing keto um, well, with my training? And my initial response is always like, why would you want to restrict carbohydrates in a sport that so heavily re relies upon them? And so I think that kind of goes hand in hand with, with what you're saying, Armando, is that uh, carbs are really important both uh, during a ride and then after in refilling those muscle glycogen stores. So um, I think those are definitely important things to keep in mind. Well, Andy, another question for you. What is, you know, if listeners are you know, listening to this and realizing, oh, you know, I need to eat and I almost never eat on the, on the bike, um, you know, what can they be doing to train their gut to go from essentially zero and their body to go from zero grams of carbohydrate an hour to, again, whether it's 90 or up to a hundred, like how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's an area that we, we end up talking to athletes a lot about at the moment. And I would say um, the best place to start is this. There, is a, there, there are a lot of people out there that think that sports nutrition products or things that they eat on the bike, they have to sort of just put up with them and choke them down, whatever they taste like. And it's like medicine. You know, you just get it down. You It's something that's necessary. It doesn't need to taste good. But I always try and advocate for like, basically start off with finding foods and products that you like that you like the taste of you like the texture of and are appealing to eat because otherwise you will just naturally err away from them and you won't eat as many um, or as much and then really it's about going out in sort of your harder longer training sessions and really trying to push the envelope start fueling early and you know the, there's lots of research out there to suggest that an entry level carbohydrate you know amount per hour for athletes to start taking these like 30 40 grams an hour um 60 grams an hour was once thought to be a bit of something of a, a bit of a ceiling you know um that's been surpassed and it was then 90 grams of carbohydrate that was kind of the big the big hot topic number and even recent more recently we're seeing a lot of athletes taking 100 120 i've seen athletes taking 140 grams of carbohydrate when they're riding their bikes really hard and that gives a sense of what's possible. Now, I think some people are more predisposed to being able to absorb more. 
some people maybe the structure of their gut, their gut microbiome even is better at absorbing carbohydrate. But all of the anecdotal research and some of the case studies that are coming out seems to suggest that it's it's like it's like any physiological premise really you nudge it up slowly so you start off if you can do 60 grams an hour then on that that same ride next time try and do 70 grams and then try and do 80 and start to really push the ceiling and i've found that doing when the numbers get higher a combination of gels maybe chews and drinks for example is better than just trying to do it all through energy gels because of the variety because the the drinks are absorbed a little bit faster the chews give you something to chew on and give your or a bar gives your stomach a bit of something to get hold of and it it's really about finding what that mix is but it's it's nothing more complicated i wouldn't say than just turning the screw you know it's like a little bit more a little bit more and again the case studies that i've read and the athletes that i've worked with this this can be achieved in a relatively short space of time we're talking maybe you know five six weeks of of doing one or two key training sessions a week where you turn the dial up on the carbohydrates you can make some gains on what's comfortable it's always a bit of an interesting one when race day comes around because it's very hard to recreate the nervous stomach that racing brings on you know so i would i would say if you can if you think you can comfortably do 100 grams in training don't necessarily assume you're going to do 100 grams in your first big race you know it's going to be that might it might be advisable to start a little, a little bit lower but but yeah, just just overload principle, really. A little bit more, a little bit more, build build it up until you reach a point where you're either having um, um, GI issues or or just kind of not feeling like this is working, and you're not or there's dimin- seriously diminishing returns. Yeah, that's a really good point, and of course, you know that's uh, talking about solo efforts. If you're talking in a race situation where you're riding in a pack. That there's terrain, there's maneuvering in a pack, there's when it's safe to, to um, you know, take your hands off the bar and and eat. When is the next big climb coming? And and uh, all of these. So it really is a learning process about uh, you know also requires really good bike handling and a confident bike handling to be doing this too. So that's why you see, if you're watching the, uh, the tour right now, you know, almost every chance they get, the pros are, are uh, eating. You know, the pros are stuffing something, whether it's a gel, whether, whether it's a carbohydrate drink as, as often as they can, you know, whenever they can, because there's a lot of times where you can't be eating and drinking. So you got to keep cognizant of that too. Yeah. You know, one one of the things that you know it's important, I think, for to, for us to mention. You know, we've you know we're we've got a lot of our users that are using the fat and carb <clears throat> kind of calculations and apps on on our on our uh, you know the Garmin and Hammerhead uh, or our EBC app. So we're we're tracking both in real time, kind of how many carbs you're using. And I think you know just to give a little bit of background and how that's done, just so that people understand. So. The way it's it happened, the way we've worked that out in Exert is, you know, we've looked at kind of the patterns of how your signature uh, kind of erodes over longer rides, and we've determined that there is this kind of lower boundary of where your glycogen is starts starts to get utilized, um, and that's turns out to be what people what we've colloquially call your LTP or your lower threshold right so that's that's the marker of where you start to burn more carbs and what happens when you start to burn those carbs is that the 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 um, the rate at which in terms of as your intensity increases your the amount of glycogen you're going to burn goes up very very rapidly so it's kind of like you're, you're doing okay, you're doing okay. And if you just go a little bit, your intensity starts to increase, then you start going to burn a lot more, a lot more carbs. So um, that kind of how that works is all tracked within, the, within those apps. And so one of the important things you can learn from using those apps is how to um, lower those data fields, is how to kind of lower your intensity so you relieve yourself of the demand of using so much, so much carbohydrates. So, so that's really the key in terms of managing some of your longer rides is either you have to fuel 
because you're burning them. So you have to then, how do I train myself so that I, I can fuel enough to maintain the kind of intensity that's going to be demanded? That's hard because you're, you can go through, you know, a lot of carbs very, very quickly, especially if, you're, if your power is high. Um, the other alternative is to just to reduce the intensity. So if you reduce the intensity sufficiently, then you can relieve the demand of, of burning or of, of having to fuel so much to replenish the carbs that, that, you're, that you're using up. So I think that's kind of one of the things that we wanted to point out in terms of how you might be able to use our fat and carb app to kind of help inform what is that, you know, how many carbs should I be eating on in an hourly basis? Do I really need to have a hundred? Do I need to get to that level? Can I get by with a lot less because I can reduce my intensity? If I do this properly, I can manage it a little bit better. So those are the sort of things I think that, you know, if you're using those apps, you can use those to kind of help you gauge in terms of what kind of, uh, what kind of fueling you might need for your rides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love using those fat and carb rides, especially for those long rides. I, I, I like to see uh, for a lot of my long, slow distance rides, I'm, I'm usually aiming to have uh, fat and carb gram wise about one to one, um, mm -hmm. if not more in favor of, 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 um, of fat. Uh, as, as Stephen mentioned earlier, there are a lot more calories per gram of fat. So kind of total energy expenditure wise, I'm looking to, to have uh, the vast majority of my work come from that, from that aerobic, uh, oxidation of those fats. Uh, and so that's just one way that I use it. And I think it is really helpful. Um, one other quick tip that I'll share with users is, uh, we, we do show the estimated grams of carbs burned. And so I know, uh, we've talked several times about kind of that upper limit of, of carb replacement, uh, and is between 60 and hundred grams per hour, maybe a little bit higher than that. And so I know if I'm doing a hard group ride or if I'm doing a hard effort uh, solo, I, I know that if I'm if I'm burning north of 200 grams of carbs per hour, I'm, I'm going to be in a world of hurt pretty quickly if I'm not eating. So I think using that data field to, to just have an idea, um, at, at least a very rough idea of how quickly I'm burning through those carbs, I think is very helpful uh, and that you'll find it useful uh, as you start to work through your nutrition strategy. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's uh, just about all of the topics that we had for today. Um, I did want to say uh, thank you to you, Andy, for, for taking the time to, to join us today and uh, for sharing, I think, a lot, a lot of helpful information and uh, some of your experiences. So thank you. I've really, really enjoyed chatting, chatting with all of you guys. And as I said, you know, especially there's some esteemed company on this call and I uh, was very honored to get an invite. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, really enjoyed getting the uh, kind of the hands-on approach too. I know I, I'm kind of here talking about the science of it, and you know I have a bit of experience with with cycling, but to have someone kind of in your position to you know with the with personal experience and also working with top athletes too, it's really good to kind of see what's happening kind of close up from that perspective. So thanks a lot for kind of your insights there. Yeah, definitely, Andy. I really appreciate you joining us on uh, on our podcast here. I think it's been, uh, as far as I'm concerned, one of the, you know one of the most uh, um, was, the amount of information and the knowledge that I think we shared on this podcast is really you know pretty pretty high. So I'm very uh, I'm very glad that we've had a chance to have you and Stephen sort of talk about your areas of expertise. And uh, I think I think it's been an outstanding podcast. All right. That's awesome. Thank all of you for your time. And uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye for now. All right. Cheers. Bye.